0: This is What's Next from American Security Project. I'm Maggie felton Pilch. Today I'm joined by Emily Anagnostos, research analyst for the Institute for the Study of War, focusing mostly on post-ISIS Iraq. Emily, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So there's a lot happening right now. And of course, we were just talking before we started recording about how tricky it can be to talk about uh, the U.S involved campaign in Mosul without tying it to specific dates. Um, But a lot of what you're working on right now is thinking about the conditions that exist and have existed in the past as well for what you call a new Sunni insurgency um, to emerge in Iraq, specifically after ISIS uh, leaves. What does that mean? Sure. So what we've been
1: looking at is though, even though we're in the midst of a large battle to recapture Mosul, um, a lot of the conditions that allowed ISIS to really gain root in Iraq are still around um today and are set up to allow possibly a second insurgency to resume after ISIS starts to lose its grasp on Iraq um we've seen uh, the the actors that are were present since Saddam Hussein fell in 2003 um and have been insurgents since that and are still around and the political conditions that allowed these sort of insurgencies to arise are still unanswered today.
0: So how would you explain to someone who is not at all familiar with kind of Iraqi history or governance, aside from, you know, basics as someone who watched or read the news in the last 15 years, what are those conditions that you're referring to that can um, make insurgency a more realistic possibility in the region?
1: Absolutely. A lot of the most kind of recent chapter in Iraqi history really begins when the U.S. withdrew in 2011. Um, after that, we we lost the ability to really kind of constrain and guide um, or encourage certain behaviors politically wise uh, in Baghdad. Um, as soon as, as soon as kind of we left from Iraq, a lot of the um, guidance that we gave, especially to develop a very healthy government system in Baghdad, um, went out the window. So we saw a lot of behavior, primarily from the former Prime Minister Nouri maliki that really marginalized and alienated particularly the Sunni components of the Iraqi political society. Um, And with that, we began to see greater unrest, particularly in uh, mostly Sunni areas of Iraq, specifically Ambar, but also northern Iraq around Mosul and Hawija. Um, These protests in 2012 and 2013 2013 were mostly peaceful, um, but they did begin to grow more restless as former Prime Minister Maliki tried to suppress them. Uh, in this unrest, groups like then Al-Qaeda in Iraq, but then renamed into ISIS, were able to really grab hold of that frustration, um, co-opt it in some senses, build off of it, and really redirect it into a way that ballooned it into a full-out insurgency.
0: And I think, you know, there are some obvious reasons why you and I, you know, given what we do, uh, would be like, ooh, insurgency, not good. Why would an insurgency be bad here? Sure.
1: Uh, so the insurgency that we see developing is
0: one that is still a very grassroots insurgency.
1: It's, it's coming out off of these actors that are not necessarily Salafi Jihadi. A lot of these actors were old Ba'athist groups that, as we said, were around since 2003. But because they aren't very national and they're kind of splintered groups, there is the opportunity for groups such as al-Qaeda to develop them into a more national and um, even transnational, if it goes back into Syria, um, more national group with greater objectives, and to then also redirect it away from a more Ba'athist ideology and national ideology towards possibly a Salafi jihadi, which, of course, is a threat to the United States and could develop again into a greater global threat.
0: So you mentioned um, that, you know, some of these groups have been around since 2003, at least if not before, and, and kind of resurged, um, you know, under Maliki. What about the, the current campaign against ISIS makes them a, a threat rather than a consideration, if that makes sense? You know, why, why is this something we need to be paying attention to now?
1: Sure. We are starting to pay attention to these groups now because they have shown signs that they are still there, that they are active, and that they pose a threat, especially to the stability of the Iraqi government. Uh, groups such as uh, old Baathist groups like Jeshil or Turkey and Naxshibia, which we're just going to call JRTN because that's a long name.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: these groups um, were suppressed under ISIS, or even in some senses compromised with ISIS as ideals, just in order to kind of make it through. Um, but these groups remain with the core objective to really overthrow the Iraqi government and reestablish establish more Ba'athist-driven uh, government. Um, their attempts are also destabilizing to the Iraqi government as it is now um, and pose a threat to the Iraqi government's ability to
0: defeat ISIS as it stands. So given kind of the objectives of these groups, is it possible, or maybe not even just possible, but realistic to build policy to engage positively with these groups, you know, is there a way kind of to avoid catastrophe or is it inevitable and it's really just a a manner of how do we manage it?
1: The way to avoid catastrophe would be removing the recruitment grounds for these groups, um, we have not really had a policy of engaging directly with these groups, but mm-hmm. we can certainly remove the fertile ground that they can grow in. Um, all these groups are developing out of political frustrations. At the heart, all of Iraq's problems are the inability to successfully integrate mainly Sunni Arabs into the government structure, which is, as it stands, a currently Shia driven government. Mm-hmm. Um, so all these Bathist groups are really feeding off frustration, picking up, picking up it, uh, developing uh, soldiers and recruitment grounds that can really drive it into a full-out insurgency. So tamping down on that frustration and directing it successfully into a political outlet um, is really the way to remove the temptation or the, um, the desire to join a more extremist or
0: insurgent group. Sure. And you know, again, we're talking about this Sunni-Shia divide that I feel like we've been talking about forever, right? Um, So do you think that part of the challenges we're facing now, that Iraq is facing now and will face, um, you know, when ISIS is driven out, are the same issues that that have come to really shape at least Western understanding of modern Iraqi history? And you know we've just failed to address them adequately in our previous attempts or is are there real changes in the environment that are resulting in new and different concerns being raised by the same groups of people
1: a lot of the concerns i believe remain how what is the representation of each group in the political situation? Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of these factors are now kind of compounded by financial problems. Um, Security problems remain an issue. Um, Influence from outside actors. How is Iran intervening? How is groups like Turkey or Saudi Arabia intervening? How is the crisis in Syria overflowing back into Iraq? Um, So a lot of... It's difficult and often incorrect to kind of break it down into the Shia-Sunni divide, Um, especially because each of these groups have very complex internal disagreements. The Shia is very much not a unified black bloc in Iraq. Uh, Neither is the Sunni. And each of these internal divisions um, compound the problems as well.
0: So, you know, you brought up a really important point that to many people, not just you know, kind of the average American citizen, but policymakers make this mistake of assuming that entire Sunni groups and Shia groups uh, all operate under the same kind of focus and everyone has the same goals, and, and that's not accurate. Um, do you, how much of, of that failure to understand how truly complex these identities and motives are, it's playing into a lot of the challenges... We're facing now, and will continue to face, you know, in building a new governance structure.
1: Absolutely, I I think a lot of the problem is that we we amount a lot of it to religion, and I think a lot mm-hmm. of the lines a lot of the lines do fall because of religion, but a lot of it is also how groups want to relate to the government. There mm-hmm. are some groups that feel it is best to be decentralized. Um, this is especially a problem where we see in Mosul, where a lot of the issues are not so much religion or ethnic tensions, but really the fact that a lot of Moslewis believe that the government should have much less control mm-hmm. over the city, and that's what they've really been resistant to, um, where we also have groups that are much closer to the government and see it as a source of patronage and leverage and financial gain.
0: Sure. Um, so you mentioned a moment ago, um, you know, Turkey, what's going on in Syria, that flooding into Iraq, because obviously Iraq does not exist in a vacuum. Um, so I wonder, what do you think the role of Iran, whether directly, indirectly, by proxy, whatever, kind of is in the future of Iraq?
1: Sure. We've, we've seen Iran uh, increasingly put a bigger hand into Iraq. It's always had a strong hand in Iraq, um, mostly because Iraq has a big Shia population. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is also Iran's objective to really export... Islamic Revolution in the region, but also mm-hmm. often comes in conflict with the U.S. because the second, secondary objective of Iran is to expel the U.S. from the region. We saw Iranian and U.S. objectives temporarily align in 2014 when both saw the need to stabilize the Iraqi government in order to defeat ISIS. Um, and that's when we had the ascension of Prime Minister Abadi, the current Prime Minister of Iraq, um, to the premiership in 2014, even though Prime Minister Abadi is at the heart of Um, a prime minister that is receptive to U.S. interests. Iran was tolerable of a more Western-leading prime minister um, because Prime Minister Abadi came with the guarantee that the U.S. would bring air support and military power to defeat ISIS, which Iran was um, agreeable to, and also because Prime Minister Abadi Abadi, um, wasn't really strong enough to really overcome Iran's hand in Iraq at the time, and he really isn't today. So Iran was willing to kind of put up with Prime Minister Abadi and use him and continue to really influence the Iraqi government around him without the need to instate its own prime minister. What we are starting to look at is Iran positioning itself as anti-ISIS operations start to come to an end. and also as 2018 elections in Iraq come to the foregrounds. And this is when we, should, we are starting to see Iran really beef up its proxiness and its influence in Iraq really more overtly um, than it has before, where it's kind of gone under the radar in some respects, even though we all knew it was there. Um, but now it's really kind of coming um, out explicitly. We're seeing Iran really positioned to take, take advantage of what is likely a strategic shift um, and who is the dominant influence in Iraq.
0: So what does that look like? What does it look like for Iran to be more obvious um, about its influence or interest to, in influencing in Iraq?
1: Sure. Iran, one of the most, um, one of the most public manifestations of Iran in Iraq has been the Popular mobilization force um, and how Iran overall has influenced the security structure of Iraq. Um, the Popular Mobilization is um, a paramilitary force. Mostly, um, most of them are Shia militias. A lot of them are these. A lot of these Shia militias are proxies of Iran, mm-hmm. though the group does include some uh, ethnic groups, including Christians, Sunnis, Turkmen. Um, but the group overwhelmingly is Shia militias. Um, the The group was largely raised to fight ISIS. Um, a lot of a lot of the militias in the Popular Mobilization, though, have history in fighting the U.S. during the early years of the Iraq War, mm-hmm. um, and also fighting on the side of Iran during the Iraq-Iran War in the 1980s. Nevertheless, this has really become Iran's dominant focus of how to influence the security structure in Iraq. We've seen the proper mobilization get more and more influence over the year. Um, Just in November 2016, the Iraqi parliament passed a bill that really starts to institutionalize these paramilitary forces as part of the security structure, granting them far more financial allocations than they got before, Mm -hmm. putting them on par with the Iraqi army per se. Um, We've also seen Iranian proxies really co-ops the formal federal police structures um, in Iraq, by putting their own people in charge, um, dismissing non proxy leaders and putting proxies in charge, and really developing a, a security force that is, with all respects, financed um, and equipped by Iraq, but is not under the command and control of the Iraqi government and is really, in the end, loyal to the Iranian government.
0: So th- that represents, I mean, kind of obviously some really. Uh, significant challenges, right? You've got, as you said, a paramilitary force that is ingrained in the, in the security structure of Iraq that is not under the command and control of the Iraqi government. So there are some really high probability of, of some like very significant threats there. Um, and it sounds like from what you're saying that you know it, it's not as likely for Iran to put in its own prime minister as it is for it to build its own armed forces. Um, do you think it's a, a, there's strong potential for there to be kind of this conflict between, let's say, the official Iraqi military and these paramilitary forces that regardless almost of the outcome of the 2018 elections, that you're going to have one government fighting another government inside of a sovereign sort of state? For control? Is that something you, that we can realistically expect, or do you think that the conflict will escalate in another way?
1: We should definitely expect there to be a competition for resources. Um, we all know that REC is not doing well financially right now, sure. mar- partly because its budget is just based on oil revenue. Um, we should see competition in how. Iraqi government is allocating finances to each of these organizations, especially now that they are starting to put them on par with each other. How does how does finances go to the Iraqi army versus the Popular mobilization? Um, we should also, and we have seen that the Iraqi government is willing to rely on the Popular mobilization as a sufficient and suitable force to retake areas. Um, we've seen that the Popular mobilization has been, been the dominant force going off towards Tel uh a city just west of Mosul. Um, we've also seen that the proper mobilization is uh, often, often, a, often a force that can and is used even if the Iraqi government is not completely on board with it mm-hmm. as a substitute for a suitable and well-trained security force. Um, this is also becoming a problem as a lot of the U.S. and coalition-trained forces have become worn, worn down over the course of very quick and successive operations. The elite counterterrorism units, for example, have gone from Ramadi to Fallujah, out to Heat, all in Ambar, um, and then all the way up the Tigris Valley towards Mosul. And they've become tired along the way, sure. letting opportunities for other units like the Popular Mobilization to enter. This is definitely a problem as a lot of these popular mobilization
0: groups have a vast history of sectarian violence and humanitarian abuses. So we've sort of touched on two separate but related issues, right? This idea of how do you involve Sunni groups in the governance process um, and what do you do about official or unofficial proxy, recognizing that, of course, the idea of an official proxy is kind of an oxymoron, um, of the Iranian government in Iraq. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there some mechanism, whether political, economic, some other structural instrument that can be used to, to deal with both, or are they completely separate kind of entities where in order to empower Sunnis, you inherently are going to anger Iranians and the Iranian government and result in some conflict with these paramilitary groups? You know, does fixing one problem mean emboldening the other?
1: Absolutely. It's a good question. I think I would say that Iran doesn't recognize the need to have a stable government. And stable government will come from equal representation, or sufficient, at least, representation by the Sunni uh, population. Iran, however, remains wary of having a Sunni population that is capable of really contesting or uh, even securing its own self. For example, um, one of the key demands of the Sunni Sunni political groups early in 2014 was to establish a National Guard. Um, This was really in the end, allow, for example, Sunni populations to secure Sunni cities mm-hmm. um, instead of having these Shia militias or really Shia-dominated Iraqi security forces to have charge instead. Unfortunately, this law was really kicked by the Shia political parties in mm. kind of middle of middle to late 2016, and it's been really rather dead since then. Mm. So while there are certainly good ideas and good objectives to have for these groups a lot of it only goes so far when you have Iran as the cap
0: sure so I you know part of me wants to ask you what do we do about all of this um but I'm not sure that there's one person on this planet who can sufficiently answer that question right because there's a lot going on here um and I still am tempted to ask you anyways though <laughs> you know what are are some elements of a successful policy kind of generally speaking like what are some early warning signs or Early success signs that would be like, hey, we're on the right path here, or well, we are doing terribly of this.
1: Absolutely. And I would say that I think we've had success in this area before, and it's not that it hasn't been done. The trouble is keeping it done. Sure. For example, we saw the awakening movement in 2007, 2008, Mm -hmm. which was primarily Sunni tribes um, equipped and trained by the U.S. to fight Al Qaeda, and it was very successful. Um, and it did really roll back al Qaeda in Iraq to the point of defeat, really. Um, the problem was that four years later it really wasn 't integrated in any way formally or permanently into the Iraqi security system, and that in while the Iraqi awakening movement is still around in some respects, it doesn 't have the same support as it did in two thousand and eight when mm-hmm. the u s was around so there are there are initiatives out there that can do the job that we need to be doing um, can really help the political system help integrate the poli- Sunnis back into the political system. Um, the trouble
0: is making it stick. Sure, and you know there's a lot of political conversation happening in the United States these days about what our role should be in the world, mm-hmm. and in something as time sensitive as as what we're talking about. You know, how long do you think the U.S. has to consider options before determining what level of involvement the U.S. should have, if any, in this particular kind of operation and rebuilding? You know, how much longer do we have to kind of sit on the fence and hem and ha about it?
1: Absolutely, the answer is not very long
0: um great
1: <laughs> yeah. the uh, If we really want to look at a timeline, we have fourteen months between Iraq enters its big political cycle in twenty eighteen it's yeah. really It's really a year away at that point the u s has to either have fixed the situation sure. or be willing to say, "Come what may we may be here, we may not be here mm-hmm. the u s should should not pursue a direct withdrawal from Iraq after Mosul. It would be it would be careless um, to immediately withdraw from a country after such a massive operation. Sure. There would still be um, major reconstruction efforts to deal with. There's also still areas of Iraq that are still under ISIS control. I, right. th- I think we all think Mosul's the last deal, but <laughs> no, there are it's s- really not <laughs> several more cities to go and there's also still ISIS activity, even right. if it's not in a city. Right. Um, we also we know that the Iraqi security forces will need more trained and equip missions sure. um, to really rebuild it after such an exhausting operation. Um, we also know that because we have these uh, elections coming up, and because we because we know Iran sees opportunities to make a bigger move, mm-hmm. the U.S. needs to be there to counter it and to sure. at least temper it and mitigate it.
0: Sure. So, Emily, our last question for people on what's next, right, is, is what's next. Mm-hmm. Um, we always frame it in the context of what we're talking about. So I think I'll pose it to you in the following kind of two ways. One is, what do you think is a realistic definition of success here? So that, that's my first kind of final question to you, right? What is a realistic idea of what what Mosul, what Iraq could look like, what U.S. involvement could look like. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, it would be naive of us to say, oh, in 14 months there will be a fully functioning democracy with a completely, you know, civilian-controlled military without any proxy activity from Iran. You know, that seems like a little far-fetched. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So what do you think is, you know, A-OK, I guess? Sure. Um, I think... First, off the
1: bat, Iraq does need to be back in control of all its territory. Yeah. Um, whether that is completely possible the next fourteen months may be on the line. Um, I don't think it's impossible, but I think it would be a big it would be yeah. a push yeah um, The next point is to have the security forces in its to- in its in the complete to be really under the control of the Iraqi government. Um, the issue that this will require a really big reform of the Iraqi security system to distance it from complete Iranian control. I think we will always, we will always have some level of Iranian influence in Iraq, yeah. um, and we need to decide on an acceptable threshold of what that influence is. Um, certainly diminishing it in the security forces is one step to go, especially because the security forces are often the point of contact between the population and the government. Um, And where we have seen friction is often when security forces, often Shia-dominated security forces, are coming into conflict with uh, a Sunni population. And rebuilding that trust, rebuilding the trust between all populations and the government, keeping Iraq a sovereign and unified country, um, is something we
0: can definitely hope for in the next 14 months. So the other side of this coin, right, kind of a less happy question, if we can call that one a happy question, um, is what's next if this does not go well, right? And so at w- how do we know we failed? And what happens if we fail?
1: What happens if we fail is that we see, the op- we see the opportunities for hostile groups like Al-Qaeda or ISIS 2.0, whatever it may be, to resurge. And we see in reverse, in converse, the opportunities for the U.S. shrink. Hmm. um we we already see indicators that there are multiple insurgent groups acting in iraq we see competition um between possibly isis and these kind of Baathist groups we see we see a political situation that um is possibly moving in a direction that will further alienate some groups and will embolden iranian overtures the kind of If we want to keep going down this path, we see the U.S. in the most dangerous way possible being really expelled from the country Um, if we keep going down a very dangerous trajectory of this U.S. diminishing role in Iraq, an Iranian emboldening role. um, And with the U.S. left with no really ability to combat possible insurgent groups that become Salafi jihadi
0: groups that remain a threat to the U.S. We have no option in the end. Well, Emily, hopefully over the next 14 months, you will be back. We'll talk about this again. Hopefully with a better ending. Yeah, right. I mean, none of these ever have a good ending. We just go with it. (laughs) (laughs) That's how we know it's not the end. It's just a continuation. Um, Emily Anagnostis, research analyst, Institute for the Study of War. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Maggie. This has been What's Next from American Security Project. I'm Maggie Feldman-Pilch.